The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. My name's Jason Fleming, and this is the More Than My Past podcast from the Forward Trust. For this episode, I spoke to one of the most fascinating people I've ever come across, a man who has lived and is still living a truly extraordinary life. Lord John Bird's best-known contribution to British society came from when he co-founded The Big Issue in 1991, a publication and social business that offers homeless or at-risk people the chance to earn a legitimate income. That came after he'd forged a career in the print industry despite the dual challenges of dyslexia and child poverty which entailed homelessness at an almost unthinkably young age and a string of prison sentences in his youth. We discussed these experiences and how they formed his view of people on the margins of society. This one's not to be missed. So, John, I said your name in my house the other day. I've got eight-year-old boy twins. And I said, Lord John Burt. And my son said, well, he sounds posh, Papa. And I said that, in fact, John Bird is the antithesis of posh to me. That's not how you were brought up, and that's not your history, is it, John? No, no. My mum and dad love them. They were not posh. They were many things. Drunks, good fun to be with, but they weren't posh. And, John, it said in um, the notes I got that you were in a state of homelessness from a very young age. Like, it said five. Is that possible? Is that Well, yeah, there were periods of homelessness. We were in a a slum called Notting Hill, and we were thrown out when I was five in 1951, because my mum and dad hadn't paid the rent. And we then moved into a space in the roof of my grandmother's flat around the corner. And we lived there for a year. And then we were put in another slum. And then the rent wasn't paid. And then we were made homeless there. And we were taken in by the our church, Catholic church, because my family are London Irish. So we were taken in by the church and put in an orphanage. And that was uh, five boys at the time. There was five boys. Yeah. So homelessness was very early on. My parents were then made homeless, but there was no support then. You know, the local authority didn't look after you. Yeah. You were put into a children's home quite young, but stayed with your brothers. One of the brothers went to one orphanage and the other one went to another one and and then I was in the same one with my elder brothers, but they were, I was seven and they were nine and 10. And they were very useful to the nuns who were bringing us up. But they joined the workforce, which meant they were in a different part of the orphanage. So I was, you know, brought up with a hundred other incredibly troubled, largely London Irish children who were the result of marriage breakdown murder even you know and then the war children who's lost their parents in the war so that that was the orphanage well it, it was called an orphanage though probably most of the people weren't orphans they were just displaced yeah that obviously to to our eyes that conjures up this image of you know like a waif like kid in an oliver twist kind of situation in the uh, in notting hill of the you know of the of the 50s but the reality the reality of that must have been terrifying for a young boy well Somebody asked me yesterday, it must have been terrible being brought up in a slum. And, you know, when you're born, if you're born in a shoebox on the M1, then that's your experience. I was in Kibera, which is the largest shanty town in Africa, and I saw some of the happiest children I'd ever seen. 
largely because their parents looked after them and actually cared for them and gave them guidance. And that's all they'd known. No long as you're not, you know, you're not starving and no long as you're not unable to dress yourself and and all that stuff. No, I I was in the slums and it was the happiest time of my life. The worst thing was when we didn't pay the rent, so we got made homeless. And living with my grandmother, my grandmother, unfortunately, was a a very militant Protestant and my mother was a Catholic because my dad was a Protestant. So we had those kind of arguments about the Catholic. And my, my grandmother said my mother was... You know, the only redeeming feature about the Irish was the fact they weren't black. So uh, that, so it was that kind of really poisonous. And that's the, one of the problems. I, You know, poverty brings poverty of spirit and mind as well, you know, in your thinking. And, I, you know, I picked up loads of trash. It took me decades to get out of my anti-Semitic, anti black, anti-Asian, even anti-English. I mean, we were brought up to hate the English, and here we were living with them. You know, what Blake calls the mind-forged manacles, that's real hard work. That's harder than actually getting out of poverty. I mean, becoming prosperous. It's the mind. It's interesting, isn't it, John? Because at the moment, uh, when we recorded this, was just after the worldwide marches for Black Lives Matter. And that whole idea of changing your mindset and the idea of like, it's not okay just to to be anti-racist. You have to be actively that way. You have to say, you know, just to be quietly not racist isn't good enough anymore. And I'm guessing that as you grew up, all those things that are installed in you about who you hate and who you, who you don't trust, you know, to shake those off, like you said, the manacles of that hatred is, is really hard to do. Yeah, it was it, it was horrible. I, I was very blessed because even though I've never been a, a big, you know, all of my crimes and wrongdoings or all of the times I got caught, shall we say, had all really been over by the time I was 21, even though I was hiding from the police for, until I was 27, my all my institutional life was in my teens and 20s. Even though I, I was considered a bad boy, I went off to Paris to hide from the police in London. And uh, I met a Marxist girl, a lovely Marxist girl, who uh, looked after me and converted me from all the hatred I had, you know, talking about Jews and Indians and black people and all that. And at the end of it, I became a, a Marxist anti-racist. And uh, I I was a real pain in the rear because I came back and I'm talking to my family, telling them off, you can't think that. And, and of course, not realising, just telling people off, telling off mum, telling off dad, telling off all my brothers who were still saying the same kind of poison. And, you know, unfortunately, most of them are still thinking that way. John, just yeah. taking you back a little bit to, to those times of incarceration, because my experience that, that got me to involved with the Forward Trust has been working with prisoners who I very early on found out, as you well know, I'm not telling you, I'm just talking about it to the audience, but, you know, people aren't one thing. And I found people who've been accused and committed of terrible, violent crimes who have a huge amount of compassion and love within them. But what was your experience? I mean, obviously, you've been through the children's homes, but what was your experience of that jump up to incarceration? How was that for you? And did you have to style it out? Well, my 
period of incarceration started at the age of 13. It started off in doing short, sharp shock, uh, detention centre, boot camp, and then into boys' prison, and then into reformatory, and then back into boys' prison, then back into reformatory. What really struck me was how prisons and institutions were, were like outdoor life. And it was a kind of class system. And the class was, you know, the big boys, the tuppies. And I, largely because I had had a very belligerent father and had been brought up very rough, I was not going to be just a, a patsy. So I fought against people who bullied me and I did my best to bully them. And I hated that. And I think my my deepest feeling is that prisons are run like life, which is you got the people with the money telling the people without the money what to do. And I don't think an awful lot has changed. And it really made me a very aggressive and nasty person. That was the worst thing. My mind went. I'd go into a pub and want to kind of just pick a fight, you know. So I had this enormous amount of aggression. And uh, that, unfortunately, affected me when I became a father. And I didn't bring up my children. Uh, I didn't hit them, but I verbally terrorize them, you know, get here, get there, do this, do that, and all that stuff. So I, I once again, I'm concentrating on the mind mm-hmm. because I think what we've got to realize is that people who go into prison are no different from anybody else. They've just had some circumstances which have led them along that path, and we've got to give people who are banged up a Rolls-Royce service when it comes to mental well-being. Because if we can get the stuff out of their heads, then they're they're not with us forever. I've got mates now, and I'm 74. I've got mates from back in Fulham and the World's End, Chelsea, and where I I grew up and in Notting Hill, who have still got the mind forged manacles. They're still harming themselves, and they're harming. Well, they're they're making a, a horrible life for themselves. So if we can get our young, principally our young, but not so young, if we can make that investment while they're banged up, look upon it almost as a kind of university or a college or whatever, or we, we could make enormous changes. And then we'd get people out of the grief forever. We're learning, and I've learned, that if you put your hand out and show a bit of compassion and love to say to people, you know, we, we're off you a change, 80% of people in prisons will take it. You know, they'll take it gladly and with two hands. Yeah, and that is, when I started the big issue, I would say probably... A third of the people I worked with were ex-offenders who had got themselves in grief and ended up on the streets and resorted to drink and drugs and stuff like that. And I found that if you offered comradeship, which is solidarity based on equality, you weren't some kind of geezer in a white coat and a clipboard. You know, By the time I was 25, I can honestly say the only really sensible people I'd met in the world were probation officers. And and I know people have good and bad probation officers, but I had three probation officers who who talked to me as though I was a human being. And they didn't make me feel as though I was a piece of post-war social statistical failure or which a lot of people, you know, there's ah, you know, you know, you give the working class everything and before you know it they're they're robbing your house or something like that, you know. Yeah. 
John, you mentioned that probation officers had helped you and you also mentioned earlier on that you had some teachers in Nick who'd helped you. And I think I think you learned to print first in, in prison, didn't you, John? Was that a teacher that taught that? Well, I, I learned to read and write. I was 16 and I'd been in a reformatory. They used to call them approved schools. Mm-hmm. And I was doing a three to five, you know, a three to five year sentence. And I ran away from this place and nicked a car and smashed it up at 102 miles an hour without a safety belt, not to be recommended. I was banged. I was in a in a place, Ashford Boys Prison, and this screw came in one day and asked me if I wanted a book. And I must have paused or said, oh, oh, oh. and he said, oh, you can't read, can you? I'd never, ever admitted to anybody that I'd been through school. I'd been through, you know, Roman Catholic school and learned all about Jesus and everything. And I, I suppose I pretended I could read. Mm-hmm. And I, there were words I could read, but dyslexia is its not like you can't read. It's that you can only read certain things like big words, America or something like that, but you, you don't know the meaning of the word. And this screw gave me a pencil and a book, and he said, underline all the words that you don't understand. And he came back three days later, and he was astonished. He said, all these words are silly little words like there, therefore, and all that stuff, and all the little words that give you the meaning. Then I was in another place, and they used to give you training, work training, and there was a print department, and I just fell in love with it. And then when I was in my late 20s and trying to – I handed myself in to the police because they had been looking for me for six years uh, and paid off some fines and, you know, apologised and all that old stuff. And I started to get jobs in the print industry. Then I became a printer. So in my 30s, by the time I got to probably 31, I was getting a job as a printer. And then I started my own print business because I was in love with printing and I worked through the night and made shed loads of money that way and was quite prosperous in my 30s. And it was something that I'd learned while I was banged up. I love that. And I did a lot of work for radical charities and and organisations. I started magazines for galleries and stuff like that. So I knew all about that. So when I started The Big Issue, nothing was foreign to me. Hello, I'm Chris England, and I'm here to tell you about the Fun Factory podcast, available now on Great Big Owl. Each time, I will be reading a couple of chapters of my novel, The Fun Factory, a historical comedy about the history of comedy, so it will kind of be like a free audiobook, which you can listen to at the gym, or jogging, or at your desk while pretending to do your job, or on the train, without the embarrassment of people seeing you actually reading a book like some kind of swat. John, as we've been talking about, none of us are one thing, and that's the thing which I've taken a lot from the interviews I've been doing and also from my you know, my experiences in the prison. But um, when you speak to prisoners or, or people on the street now, how do they react to you going from lock-up to the Lords? I mean, it, it's an incredible yeah. story and, you know, it's pretty unique. It's, it must be unique. I think I'm the most high, highly placed ex-offender. I mean... You've got to bear in mind that a number of them could be bent uh, and have been thrown out over the years, but they did their wrongs when they went in the house. I did mine before I went in. Because I love people, 
that's the problem with me. I'm, yeah. I'm obsessed with people. Even the bullies I've met, if you kind of um, manage to ever get through to them, they're just troubled children. Of course. And when I meet people on the streets, as a devout Marxist Catholic, if you can imagine that, that's how I describe myself now, I'm always privileged to talk to people who talk to me without dressing. You know, they're not trying to show off and I'm not trying to show off. I probably get more out of it than they do. What I think is really, really important is, as you say, people are a kind of combination of lots of things. They're lot, You know, we've all got positives and negatives. And when I meet people, I always try and, uh, I try and look for what I can do that can move them somewhere else. This is a question, actually, that one of my sons asked. Cassius um, was really interested in the fact that you're what he describes as posh now and that you weren't when you started because you're called a lord. And he and I explained to him about the about who, what a lord was. And he said, as a lord from your background, and he knows that a lot of the people in the House of Lords are very privileged and come from a very privileged background. He said, who do you sit with at lunch and who from the other side who knows you're as much as you're not defined by your background, that's the case for the lord's who've had a privileged background, but who from the other side has helped you and worked with you that, that doesn't naturally, wasn't naturally born into that? Who's the person that you've most been surprised by or, or, or inspired by? There's a Lord Lestol who uh, is an Irish, you know, he's got an Irish peerage, but hasn't lived in Ireland. I think he's about the eighth Lord or no, he's the Earl of Lestol. So he comes from hundreds of years of privilege, and he uh, is a crossbencher like me, which means I'm not appointed by any political party, but chosen by the committee that chooses applicants. I made an application to join the Lords, and I had to go through interviews and all that. But Lord Lestol is a man who is obsessed with children leaving the care system, and that's where all of his efforts go into. Um, and whenever there's a debate about children, about the care system, about the amount of people who end up in the prison system from the care system, uh, and him and I are almost at one because, I mean, I never talk about his money or anything like that. I don't talk about his privilege. I talk about how useful he is when I want to raise questions about the care system and the fact that we spend an arm and a leg on the care system. And then we, most people leaving it at the age of 16, have a reading age of a 12-year-old. So uh, these are the big issues to me. So Lord Lestola is one of them. I have talked to Lord Baker a lot. Lord Baker started these scientific academies or training academies where children can learn science and learn technology largely because they've been troubled at school and they don't do very well a bit like me and I mean if I'd been put into a technical academy or rather than a secondary modern catholic school I would have learned all sorts of technology I could have worked on cars I could have worked on print machines I could have done everything and Lord Baker, who is a former member of Margaret Thatcher's cabinet, she, he was, the, I think he was the Minister of Education. These are people who I talk to and are very, very useful. I've got a bill going through the house called the Wellbeing of Future Generations, which is about breaking that 35% statistic where we fail that amount of our children in the school system who then end up 
being the majority of people who were stuck in working poverty and long-term unemployment and even end up in prison. Lots of people in prison haven't done well at school. Some of them are high Tories, some of them are Labour, some of them are Lib Dems. I'm not a classist. Who do I have lunch with? I have lunch in the canteen, which is the canteen that is shared by the police, the cleaners, and all sorts of other people. I don't ever, or I rarely, go to the high tables, only when I've got a guest and you've got to kind of impress them. Or I go to a place called the Pugin Room, which has MPs and lords, and then I can talk to some of the MPs uh, about what I'm trying to do, which is to dismantle poverty, not to make the poor a little bit better off. There are too many people who want to make the poor a bit more comfortable, and I want to make poverty something that you can get out of. Back to the street with the paper, you know, obviously, and I've seen it many times, how selling the newspaper changes people's lives and how selling that paper gives them what you were saying about the comradeship, you know, about it makes it possible for people who are uncomfortable talking to homeless people, talk to homeless people. Do you know what I mean? That for me, that's always been a major thing in my life growing up is like, if there's someone on the street that's homeless, I say hello, you know, and, but that's intimidating for a lot of people. And the paper allows that dialogue and that relationship to build up. And you must know some incredible stories, John, about people who've sold the paper and who've gone on to be more than their past. Is there any one of those that you'd like to tell us about or share with us? I mean, no, it's a huge subject, but just one individual. Well, uh, a young girl whose father was a heavy drinker who died and whose mother was a heavy drinker. And she was 15 and not living a very nice life in and out of social housing and not doing very well. And she told us she was 16, which was the minimum age you could sell the big issue. So she sold the big issue. And she did her levels. You know, she did um, her own levels. Um, she did those. She's a woman in her mid-30s. Wow. And uh, she did those. And then she got stability. She got a room at 18, applied for the fire service. And because she'd done her, her education, she wrote, you know, she went in, filled in all the forms, became a fire officer, made her way up, and is now a chief fire officer. And has written a book about it and all that and is now an ambassador for the big issue, she's an absolutely brilliant example of what that can do. I can tell you also, I've been to Brixton, where you have worked recently. I've been to Brixton to see people. I I was never there myself. I'd go in there and I would see big issue vendors who got themselves into trouble. I would see all sorts of people. I went to a a, a mate of mine who, who was attacked by a gang and killed one guy and he was banged up. He was let free because it was self-defense. But what was so brilliant was it was the big issue that kept him completely grounded because he was likely to fall to pieces and become lost and eventually got out. And he went on and became a social worker because he realized that he had something which was experience which would be very, very useful to people who who were getting banged up and all that sort of stuff. So there are countless stories like that. There are also horrible tragedies. I went to too many funerals to think that it was, you know, it was all success. But, But, you know, 
overall, I would say what the big issue does, I used to be a beggar. And when I was a beggar, I was brilliant at it. And I've begged all over Europe. Don't beg in France, by the way. But uh, I would beg. And the first rule of a beggar is always exaggerate how bad off you are. So somebody gives you some money and you put it in one pocket and you might have got a couple of quid. And the next person you come along and you have to be desperate. So what happens is your mind changes. You become more and more a salesman for wretchedness. So you have to look wretched. You have to sound wretched. You win more support from the public the more wretched you are. So therefore, it means even if you were beginning to put a bit aside, you would have to go back to looking wretched. The difference with the big issue is that when the public talks to somebody selling the big issue, they say, how's it going? And if they're playing the game sensibly, they say, it's going really well and I'm doing well out and I've put a bit of money aside and I've got myself housed and all that and the big issue's got me some tools or something like that. So it's an upbeat thing, whereas begging is always downbeat. And the more downbeat you are, and your job in a way is to be as downbeat as possible, it can only lead to greater wretchedness. It's contagious, isn't it? It's it's like a it's like a bad actor, you know. If you're pretending to be something for long enough, it it takes its toll on you, you know. And that that, that must be the same with living on the streets and begging, you know. Yeah, uh, but I have to tell you, um, if I have a something, I always tell people when it talks talks about prisons. I a few years ago, I was asked to talk at a, something to do with top prison wardens, you know, people who ran prisons. And there was about 150 people at this conference up in the Lake District. And I was there and I, I asked them all, everyone who has rehabilitation in the top five of their concerns, please put their hand in the air. Not one hand. Then I said, all right, top 10. Not We had to go to top 20. And all the concerns of the prison officers was just to keep the prison turning over. Nobody dies. Nobody commits suicide. Nobody runs away. The staff are safe. All those sorts of things. So those kind of considerations were their top concern. And a good day for them was when none of the bad things happened. And they could start the day, go to bed at night, say, thank God nothing like that happened. So there was no room for rehabilitation. When I was in the custodial system, you know, for the 10 years that I was, I can honestly say that rehabilitation was in everybody's mind, even when I was banged up in a boot camp and they were kicking 10 colours of shit out of us. They would then give us courses to, to learn things which might be useful later on. And unfortunately, it's increasing. There are increasing signs but the budgets are not given by the Ministry of Justice now or Home Office as it was before. They're not given to the things that you that a prisoner could learn that would prepare them for a better exit at the other end. It ties into what you were saying, and I've heard you talk about it before, but about the dismantling of poverty, you know, giving people the tools rather than just making them comfortable. And I think from, I mean, you've inspired lots of people John but for me that's such an amazing amazing concept and it's so easy it's so obvious but once you get your head around that it makes perfect sense but it's it needs someone like you to articulate it but you know one of the things we really do have to do is I mean I was always a petty thief so if you added up all the things I ever got out of 
being a rogue, you know, it'd be the equivalent of about two bob a day, two shillings a day or something like that. You know, <laughs> I was never very good at it, but I was, I was a troublemaker. So I burnt places, you know, I smashed up places. You know, I, I did I did mad things that was hurting myself and hurting other people. So that, what that was, it was a manifestation of mental illness. And what we have to do is we have to convince the government or governments that we have to promote the healthy growth of people and find the demons while people are banged up as to why they're doing things and not just treat it as you're a naughty boy, naughty girl, we are now going to punish you. And there's too much of that removing you from circulation and not doing anything with you. I remember the days when they believed in, you know, you went in bad and you came out good. And I think uh, now, I think there's too many warehousing of people who, some of them, I've met geniuses. I met met people who, who really do have great mental ability, but they haven't managed to use it in a a legitimate world, in a legal world. If you're interested in hearing more about the More Than My Past campaign and viewing dozens more inspirational stories, check out the campaign website, morethanmypast.org.uk. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends, subscribe and look out for future episodes. Great Big Owl. Oh.